0: you are listening to GNU World Order episode 34 season 12 for 2018 2008 i want to return to our slackware tour so that we can try to make some progress within this a package set. so if this is if you're if you're new around here and you're wondering what i'm talking about uh, lately i've been taking a tour of all the packages installed in the default slackware install This is applicable to most Linux users, though, even if you're not running Slackware. There are a lot of little applications on your Linux system, a lot of which are just kind of invoked silently behind your back. You don't really know they're being used. Others you use every day, possibly, in in a terminal. Maybe you use ls and cd and so on, and, and, and ps, and all those other commands. But generally, I think that the, the reality of most Linux systems is that there are hundreds of little executable applications installed in user bin and bin and sbin and user sbin that, that a lot of us don't even know exist. We, we have just no idea that they're there. So I thought it might be an interesting thing to just take a look at literally every single one. So that's what we've been doing for a couple of different episodes here, and We've gotten away from it, but now I want to get back to it, because it is... It's worth talking about, because it's a really interesting study, actually. Well, sort of, because the first one that I'm going to talk about is called Quota. Which, I mean, while interesting, it's it's actually not... I don't have a... I don't have the idea that it's probably all that useful to most of us. Quota is exactly what it sounds like. It is a way to allot a certain quota of disk space. To your users, so right, right there, it it, it assumes that you are ha- that you're running a multi-user system. Which, I mean, if you're running a, a a Linux system, then you are by default technically running a multi-user system. But in terms of whether that actually means anything to you, is is a completely different question. A lot of us, I think, typically running Linux on the desktop, it's not really being utilized as a multi-user system. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe you share your computer with a loved one, or or a child, or something. well, I guess that's not mutually exclusive, but whatever. But with someone else, maybe maybe that is something that happens. But even in that case, I, I have a feeling probably most of us just kind of, you know, it's it's two or three users around the house, we all kind of self, self-limit what we download onto the computer, or or maybe the person whose computer it is, uh, the 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 person who sort of maintains that computer maybe they do a little bit of policing of the download folders if a downloads folder uh, and 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 so on so whether or not this is actually all that useful I'm not sure but having said that I've worked on a major multi user system like hundreds of people having access to uh, the same, pretty much the same uh supercomputer. So I've, I've been on a system where I have been allotted a quota and had to check in every now and again to see whether I'd gone over quota. Well actually I didn't have to manually check in, it usually would uh, bring up a little error message when you log in if you're getting close to your quota. So it is something that can be used, it's just not something I don't think that really is all that common these days, but it's something that exists, and so we may as well talk about it. So Quotas is a little application that flips a switch onto a on a certain file system, and once that switch is flipped, then Quota can monitor that file system to see if everyone's quota is within their allotted limit. There are a couple of different commands that get installed with the Quota package. Uh, the 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 first one that you'll likely need to interface with if you're setting all of this up is a set quota. Set quota does exactly what it suggests. It sets a quota for a specific user. Now to be quite honest it's not as straightforward as, as one would hope. I sat down and tried to I've never set up a quota myself. Uh, like I say I've I've been subject to a quota but I, I've never had to set one up. So I sat down and tried to figure it out just from the man pages and it was really, really quite not easy. I, I was not I, I was not super pleased. Like um, you know, if if you think of of people complaining about oh the old style Unix commands, they're so difficult and the man pages aren't really that useful and all that other good stuff. Well, if you're looking for a good example of what someone might be complaining about when they say something like that. Look no further than set quota and quota and quota ctl. They're 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 really poorly, I would say, poorly written documentations on 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 something that you're not even sh- super clear on on what you're doing. You know what I mean? I mean like that. I think and that that at the end of the day, I think that is the main complaint about a lot of man pages is that there's never a point where people where, where uh, there's a there's no man page. It seems. Especially in a chain of commands, that gives you the the big picture. Like, wh- what am I doing here? Uh, I don't. I don't. You know why? Why are you reading this man page if you don't know? Well, that's why I'm reading the man page because I don't know. I know approximately what I want to do, but I don't know how it has gone about being done. So anyway, the the package that got installed is uh, quota. So if I do a less on var log packages quota, I can see from from that that uh, there are two two commands that have been installed with with w- into bin so that's quota and quota sync and then within sbin there are things like set quota warn quota and some stats things rep quota and some quota stats again and ed quota and qu- and couple of other things. So so if I do a man quota, it tells me that quota displays users disk usage and limits. By default only the user quotas are printed. Okay, so this does not set up quotas. It says quota reports the quotas of all the file systems listed in slash etsy slash im tab. For file systems that are NFS mounted, uh, you have to call rpc.r quota D on the server machine to get the information. Okay, so in other words, quota is not the thing that we want. So you go to the bottom of the page, if you know to do that, and you look at what other relevant commands exist, and that's where you can find out about other things like quotactl and setquota. So we're going to do a set, uh, we're going to do a man setquota, and this tells me that setquota is a command line quota editor. The file system User group name and new quotas for this file system can be specified on the command line. Note that if a number is given in the place of a user or group, it is treated as a UID or a GID. Okay, great. So set quota says that you can do a set quota and then define the user or the group name and then a dash capital F for the quota format. And then the name, and then the block soft limit, the block hard limit, the inode soft limit, and the inode hard limit. So that's it's not bad. That's not the worst thing in the world, I guess. But um, here's what it's here's what it says. So it says uh, dash capital F for uh, the f- quota format perform setting for specified format, ie. don't perform format auto detection, possible format names are. VFSOLD, uh, VFSV0, quota format with 32 bit UIDs, GIDs, 64 space usage. Yeah, so it kind of goes on like that for a while. And it says that the um, the block soft limit and block hard limit are interpreted as multiples of kibby bytes. That's 1024 uh, bytes. Blocks by default. Symbols K, M, and G, and T can be appended to a numerical to express um, Kibby, Mebby, Gibby, and Tebby bytes. So that sounds pretty straightforward. So if I do a set quota uh, dash U for cl- um, for the user, and Clat2 is the username, so then we need, I've uh, already forgotten, so I'm going to do a man set quota, and I'll just pipe that to head. There we go. Uh, oh, that didn't... that doesn't like to do that. Okay, so we'll do that, okay. So, um, set quota dash to. okay, so I need a... Um, I need a block soft limit. So let's say that... Um, let's just do 1 gig. And the block hard limit, let's do 2 gig. And then the inode soft limit... Um, I don't exactly know what kind of number they're looking for there, so I'm just gonna go for 1024. And the hard limit is 1048. And it just gives me... Uh, it gives me the help message. And I guess the mount point was not specified. Okay, so... Uh, slash home slash clat to And now it says, set quote a mount point or device slash home slash clat2 not found, or has no quota enabled. Not all specified mount points are using quota. So there you go. That's uh, set quota for you. It doesn't exactly tell me what I need to do after that, but if I do the man page for set quota again, then I get uh, quota on as a potential command. So this says that Quota on announces to the system that disk quotas should be enabled on one or more file systems. The file system quota must be present in the root directory of the specified file system and, by, and must be named either a Quota.User or Quota.User. So I don't really know exactly what that means. Um, but it does specify that quota on can take a file system mount point. So I'm doing that. And so I do quota on slash home slash clat2. And it says mount point or device home clat2 not found or has no quota enabled. Um, Okay, so how about just quota on slash home? Because I know that exists. Uh, Same problem, not found and has no quota enabled. So let's read this again. The file system quota files must be present in the root directory of the specified file system and be named either a quota.user. So I don't know what it means that the file system quota files must be present in the root directory of this a quota dot user. Yeah, it doesn't sound like this is actually what I think it does. So okay, anyway, point being, um, in the end, I just kind of looked looked it up, and there's a there's a website of some of one person who did this back in 2013, and kind of spells it out in in a way that man pages. Just don't. so and and I kind of touched on that in the last in the previous episode when when someone had asked me um, something about uh, no, and, so, and someone hadn't asked me, Cobra two had mentioned, oh uh, people love to regurgitate stuff and want to make money doing that, regurgitating stuff on on the internet. And this is the thing, this is the exception to that rule, I think, where where yes, the the information technically is out there. I could have I, I could could keep reading man pages and try to figure all of this stuff out for myself, or I can just do a quick internet search to some random person who has written this up online already and read their experience, and that way... And now I've learned what I what I was seeking to learn, and I haven't had to waste my time sorting through man pages that, quite frankly, may might never have gotten here. They it may never have explained to me what i needed to do. Okay, so and, and that's great. I mean, this this kind of information, this kind of regurgitation if if that's what we're going to call it, although i don't think in this case i don't think i would call it regurgitation, but but it is, i mean, it's writing up technology. This is the kind of stuff i would pay for on the internet. Okay, anyway, so this person uh, gerk.de Jan Philip D e is um i'll I have to include a link to this show note in the show notes. But uh, the, the process actually is that you add the following option for a journaled quota to the partition of interest in your slash Etsy slash FS tab. So this is your, this is where you of course mount, you know, you, you define the mount points for your system when your computer boots up. Now a lot of times you don't manually define this yourself. You You don't, Go into slash Etsy uh, Etsy slash fs tab anymore and and spell it all out. It's just something that your installer does for you, even on Slackware. Yes, even on Slackware, when you're when you're filling out or when you're selecting what partitions to make uh, part of your active system, it often auto detects other active partitions and asks if you want to add them, you know, to fs tab, and so on. So a lot of times you do not do that directly. But you could. But anyway, so what you would do in this case is uh you would put so let's say you've got a hard drive listed and it's maybe the slash it's the root mount point maybe. So slash and then maybe it's a EXT four. And so you would put that it has um User quota or actually usrj quota. Don't know what that means. Equals a quota dot user and then group j quota equals a quota dot group, and then jqfmt equals vfsv zero and then the default um, behavior for the the disk checking and things like that zero one. So, that invokes the VFSV0, which we saw in the set quota man page. This activates quotas by user and or group ID using the VFSV0 quota format using 32-bit for UIDs and GIDs, 64-bit for space usage, and 32-bit for inode usage in this case. Remount the partition, you don't have to do a reboot or anything, you just mount, dash, o, remount, slash, done. So now you've you've inherited the, the quota. The quota um, setting. So once you do that, you can do the um, quota check. Well, that doesn't really. It's not okay. So setting up an actual quota. Here we go. Set quota. So this is the uh, the set quota command. Now apparently, to get interesting information or useful sort of uh, useful data in order to calculate your 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 sizes, you need to figure out how to or how big the block the quota blocks you really want to to use. So remember I had set it to something like 1G to 2G or something like that. And what what you need to do is make sure that your block size is what you think it is. It's usually 1024, but apparently the the, the way that you would find out for sure is by catting the in, in slash US, USR slash include Uh, there's a uh, sys subdirectory in there somewhere, and a mount.h file, a header file for mounting, and you can grep that for block underscore size, all capital block underscore size, and that will show you that it's, you know, it'll list define block underscore size, and it'll give you some number, and sure enough, I think think very frequently it's going to be 1024, but I guess it could theoretically be something other than that. So 1024 times, for instance, Two would be, um, or actually, he's doing. Let's see, um, he's doing print two times ten twenty four times times two, which renders 20, uh, two th- two million ninety seven thousand one hundred fifty two. So that's the quota blocks on the par- on a partition in question corresponds to two gigabytes of disk space. So using those numbers you can do things like set quota -u -capital f vfs v0 and then the username and then the numbers so 2097152 2097152 and then uh 1 million and 1 million and then the partition is slash there you go so quota on slash it will activate the the quota system on, on the slash, and then you can get a report on the quotas with rep quota. And again, you just do that against the partition that you've turned quotas on at, so that's rep quota slash. And that's the quota system. So for something that you probably won't realistically ever use, um, that was a long kind of demo of, of something that I barely understand myself. That said, I think it's an important lesson in in really kind of what what a new user goes through when they're trying to come up with commands, you know? Um, you do a man page of something, and and it's just, it, it, it tells you exactly what that command does, but doesn't tell you the workflow that you are meant to use that command within. Or it tells you something that seems really obvious, and you're reading the, the thing, but they never tell you, oh, you need to go into your slash etsy slash fs tab, and enable a little magical cookie in there or else no matter what you do with set quota or quota on or whatever that'll never will never do anything other than you know tell you that you're doing it wrong so yeah very very interesting and a good lesson i think in not very useful error messages okay next in line is riser fs progs riser fs progs are utilities used for riser fs Riser FS is a file system based on balanced tree algorithms. So I don't use Riser FS uh, for lots of different reasons, but I respect that if you did use Riser FS at some point, you would still need tools to support that file system. And it is to Slackware's credit, I think, that it continues to support really kind of old and and i would i would say deprecated technology i mean riser fs no one is using anymore uh, if they can help it i mean someone might be using it because again historically you just you might you might be um, you might be using it but uh, i don't believe that i mean certainly development as far as i know has stopped on riser fs and i don't Believe anyone's really going to pick that up because it was very much the work of one person and that person is in jail. So that's not going to work for most people. Uh, next up is RPM2TGZ. RPM2TGZ, that's RPM and then the number two and then TGZ, is a great little script. It is one of those things that I use all the time. It is one of those things that I miss when I don't have it. It is a tool that converts the RPM and an RPM package to a Slackware package. Now, it's important to remember that Slackware packages, although they end in .tgz or .tbz or .txz, not all .tgzs or .tbzs or .txzs are Slackware packages. That's a little bit confusing because if you think, oh well, everything you know, all the package formats out there, they're they're special and and so you if if you're new to linux or or you're new to slackware or something and you think oh yeah cool tgz that's a that if that's a slackware package then i can find all kinds of tar.gz files out there that um that that are apparently slackware packages well no they're not it's just it just happens to be the the extension that slackware packages use because that's all they are is a tar.gz file or tar.bz2 or tar.xz file. The internal structure, however, is quite important. So, rpm2tgz very specifically creates a Slackware package from an RPM, which is really handy if you're running Slackware, because that means something that someone else packaged for, let's say Fedora, or CentOS, or RHEL or something, may very well work for you. It's just a, a, a cautionary statement that I say that this is unique from, let's say, uh, RPM to archive, or or some some other tool like that, which I've I've seen around, where where it's just essentially exploding an RPM and putting it into a, a standard everyday archive. This is not that. This very specifically makes a Slackware package. It's super useful, and believe me, I've used it for all kinds of different things. Um, there are just there are too many packages out there. I've I've complained about this on this show several times before, I'll go ahead and quickly mention it right now. Open source is a very big space, and anyone who thinks that their distribution is, has any chance in in the world to package every single application out there being offered up as open source is fooling themselves. So uh, the, the more cross-usefulness that we can have within Within our, within our distributions, I think uh, really the better because honestly, there's just no hope. It's not. It's, it's never going to happen. We're never going to be able to package up all the applications, much less per, on a per distribution uh, basis. It's 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 hilarious to me that people think that that's even something that we can consider achieving ever. So if someone has packaged something up for CentOS or for Fedora. And I can steal it from their repository, convert it into a Slackware package, and install it. I am happy, more than happy, to do that, and I do that very frequently. Font font packages are a no-brainer. Like if 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 there's a font out there packaged for Fedora or something, then I will grab that in in a heartbeat. It's it's just too easy. It's it, that one's an easy one. Um, Pandoc, Pandoc, I always steal from Fedora. I don't bother compiling it myself, certainly because it has Literally gigabytes of Haskell H- Haskell uh, dependencies that I just can't be bothered to compile just for uh, one little application f- for Pandoc, especially when Fedora has a statically compiled application uh, or a statically compiled version of Pandoc packaged up and um, and already in their repository. So it's just too easy to repackage. Uh, what else do I do? Um, Pandoc. Oh, Brave, the Brave web browser, I've I've, I've grabbed, because they, they distribute it as an RPM from their GitHub uh, repository, I think, and it's really easy to just grab that RPM, run it through rpm2.tgz, and end up with an installable and functional package for the Brave web browser. And and that's the kind of, that's one of them, I think that, and maybe Pandoc, although Pandoc, again, it's statically compiled, compiled so it's, I mean, I do think it's literally one file, but, the the brave uh, web browser, I think it, it, if you if you think about what you're asking, it's a little bit it almost seems a little bit risky, kind of like yeah, that that probably won't work. I mean, it's a whole web browser. There's lots of different files and lots of moving parts. and surely an automated converter that takes an RPM and converts it to a Slackware package, surely that won't that won't work. Well it does work. It works just fine. It puts everything where it needs to go at least well enough for brave to find them and and it runs just as you would expect. Yeah to be honest I've not really had a bad experience with rpm to tgz yet. I'm sure I'm sure there's a package out there that will not work. You know that that I would convert and it, it will just put files in in places that just doesn't make sense for Slackware or something. You know, I I can imagine it happening, but but so far that has not that has not been the case. And I have used it for quite a couple of different things. I mean, I've, I've used it for some music uh, tools. I've used it for fonts and browsers and and just all kinds of different applications that that you you wouldn't necessarily think would just auto convert, but they do. It works really, really well. Now, having said that, you do have to... You know, aside from the tool, you have to think about what you're doing. I mean, you you are running Slackware, and you're stealing something from... You're borrowing something from, let's say, Fedora. So if Fedora has compiled some thing against, I don't know, glib 2.25, I don't even know if that exists yet, it probably does, and and you're running glib 2.23 on Slackware because that's what it came with, then maybe that won't work. I mean, maybe it will, but but maybe it won't. Or, or if they compile something against um, uh, libpng12 and you've only got libpng16 installed, then when it reaches out into your library, folder to find libpng12, or whatever I said it was, yeah, 12, um, then then it's going to fail, because you've got 16 and not 12. Uh, and So then you might have to go and, and install the libpng12, which is actually a, a fairly common... I, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, there's a PNG library out there that keeps getting used uh, by a lot of things, and so I install that along with png16. Uh, anyway, Point is that you kind of have to use your head and kind of, kind of remember that that if you've if you've installed one thing, then then there's a certain number of dependencies that may be implied along with that thing. So you might have to make up for that dependency because it's not something is not going to just be on your system just because you've converted an RPM. So that's something to keep in mind. But as long as you kind of work intelligently and and think about the dependencies yourself, it it has a surprising level, I would say a surprising level of success, a pretty nice success rate that that, frankly I I wouldn't have always expected. I I, I feel like that would be uh, less successful. And and it's kind of funny because um, in a way it's more successful on slackware then i had success with for instance running a centos machine stealing packages from fedora because uh, what would happen is i would i would take a rpm from fedora and convert it you know i would rebuild the source rpm for centos and then i would try to install that but then it would have a dependency that didn't exist on centos at all so then you'd have to go and get that dependency from fedora and convert that source RPM, and if that had a dependency, then you have to go back and get that one and convert that one. And, you know, and so you had like this this long trail of, kind of these sort of imposed dependency resolutions. Whereas on Slackware, that 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 happens a lot less. I have found if I, if I come across an RPM that has a dependency. Then I'm usually able to satisfy it, and since there's no RPM standing in the way saying, uh, you can't," you know, that's not the right kind of resolution for this. You know, th- uh, my my spec file says I need exactly this, the pa- package named exactly this. Well, on Slackware, it doesn't. That doesn't matter. You, you're you're taking you're you're kind of you're getting rid of all those requirements. I mean, there they are still requirements. There are still dependencies, but but you, you, are per, you are given the freedom to satisfy them as you see fit. So, yeah, in a weird way, it's, it's easier to steal from Fedora on Slackware than it is to steal from Fedora on CentOS. Although, you know what, there's probably a really good workflow out there for the CentOS stealing from Fedora thing that I just need to learn to make it easier. Either way, it's, not, it's neither here nor there. RPM to TGZ, very nice little uh, application, and something that's quite specific to Slackware, but but worth worth looking into, possibly, you know, just kind of for general use, to be honest. It's, it's a really useful tool. Speaking of useful tools, it's time for coffee, because I hear coffee music. So let's go have some coffee, and we'll come right back and pick up where we left off. Right, got your coffee? Great. We're about to talk about SD Parm. So SD Parm is a, it's it's one of those kind of weird things that uh, is I guess I guess technically probably historical. So it's it's specifically it it fetches and changes SCSI attributes. That's S C S I. So, sdparm is a utility for listing and potentially changing SCSI disk parameters. More generically, it can be used on any device that uses a SCSI command set. So, that means that it doesn't only have to be literally SCSI in interface, um, but also a TAPI, ATA API, um, CD or DVD drives, and SATA drives, and, and other things like that. Now I will freely admit that this isn't really my wheelhouse. I don't generally go around um, sort of analyzing disk attributes and so on. So it's um, this is not something that I typically. This isn't really something that I'm familiar with, to be honest. Sdparm. Now I have heard of the command, and uh, so I did a man page read up on it, and it's pretty actually a pretty good man page, I have to say. So at the sort of Three quarters of the way down the man page, you get some examples, so you can actually run commands and just kind of witness, you know, sort of what the command is capable of. I guess, even though it doesn't really mean anything to me. So, sdparm as root, sdparm slash dev slash sdd, which is my, this is the drive in my computer. There we go. Read, write, error recovery mode page, and it's telling me uh, some stats about that drive. Okay, great. That's not hugely useful to me, but um, that's fine. So you can also get the WCE current value in hex. Great. So for instance, sdparm-g WCE equals one dash capital H dev sdd zero x 0x01. That was the output. It's meaningless to me. I don't know. So I mean, I'm not going to go. I'm not. I don't want to do too much because uh, sending random signals that I don't understand to my hard drive is not something that maybe necessarily I would want to to do blindly. But uh, it, it seems like a very powerful command because it enables you to kind of talk directly to your hardware, and that's always a, a fun and powerful thing to be able to do. Alright, so next up is the stream editor, that is, said. This is, of course, the GNU version of SED, which is not necessarily the version of SED that you will find on, let's say, a BSD system. But a stream editor is used to perform basic text transformations on an input stream, a file, or input from a pipe. It is SED's ability to filter text in a pipeline which distinguishes it from other types of editors. So, SED is a historical command. It's really, really old and very well respected, with good reason. It's a very powerful command, and I should probably just invite you, my dear listeners, to send me your cool SED commands, because, frankly, I could just... I mean, I can look up a bunch of SED one-liners and talk about them, but I think it would be a lot more interesting to hear from you uh, how you use said? I mean, I use said uh, fairly frequently, I guess, but it, it's generally for the classic, the classic use case, which is said, usually a dash I, I'll admit it, and then quote S for search, and then slash, and then the thing that I want to search for, and then slash, and then the thing that I want to replace that thing with slash G for global, and then close quote, and whatever file I'm I'm affecting it's 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 almost always that that i'm using sed for i think for most people that's their introduction to sed and what it does it's just it's that sort of basic i want to find the occurrence of 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 all the ip addresses of this number and scrub it out or or you know whatever it is that you're doing uh, or or change the change all instances of this domain name and change it to a different domain name that kind of thing it's it's something that I do f- frequently enough that, yeah, that that I have committed to memory. But the, it's the other, more advanced stuff that, yeah, I don't really have. And I know there's really cool stuff you can do. I mean, you can you can grab stuff and assign it to variables, and then and then put things back into those variables, and then print them out. You know, you can do all kinds of cool things with said. it's just not something that I really do all that often, so I don't know off the top of my head. So if you do stuff that's cool with said, then uh, by all means let me know, and I can talk about them on uh, the next episode of this show for other people to learn from. Uh, and if you tell me something cool, then kind of spell it out too. I mean, like, don't just throw random letters and numbers and slashes at me and and leave it up to me to figure out what the logic is. Like just break it down so that I can then read it on the show and that way everyone can learn. And and failing that, I will at least link to the 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 go-to uh, said one-liner page that I I usually that that is my cheat sheet. It's it's a sourceforge page. It's something that I've used countless of times. It's it's very useful but but again, not really a great way to learn. It, it's one of those like Entirely example-based kinds of cheat sheets, where you can kind of reverse engineer stuff. And I know that if I sat down with the book on said, it would be a lot, a, a lot cleaner, uh, of a way to learn. But I mean, you know, I, I've gone this long faking it, so I, I imagine I, I won't stop anytime soon. It, it definitely, it, it definitely works uh, well enough for what I need it for. But that said and it is installed on your system almost certainly i would be shocked if it was not i think one of the the main things about sed to remember is that or well this is a main thing if 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 you're cross platform uh, and that that is that GNU sed acts different than say BSD sed or or whatever you know other sed is out there so you can't necessarily assume that all said acts the same and and it's it's usually one of those you know 90 uh, 10 sorts of things you know like 90% of the functionality will be completely the same and then there's this uh, that one thing that you do 10% of the time or uh, you know f- so frequently you know it's just that, that small subset of stuff that that will break your command and you won't understand why until you realize when you're typing in said it's not aliased to g said as as it is on your other system. It's it's actually invoking an old Unix version of said or or a Sun version of said or or something like that, and and it doesn't have that switch or it doesn't have that feature. So something to watch out for. Okay, next up is the shadow package. Shadow is a uh, set of login-related programs. Utilize. Uh, utilizing an alternate, non-readable file to contain the actual encrypted passwords. This is presumed to increase system security by increasing the difficulty with which system crackers obtain encrypted passwords. It was written by some people, and it provides login which is needed to log into a system. Alright, so that sounds pretty important. And let's look at slash var log packages shadow. And look at what's actually involved here. Okay, so it looks like there's a couple of things that gets dumped into SBIN that's no login and SU login. It's got a couple of things in just slash bin, which is login and SU, and then some things in slash Etsy default, slash Etsy default user add, slash Etsy login.access.new, login.defs.new, and then some stuff in user bin. So there's user bin ch. Um, CHSH so that's change shell expiry G uh, or I should say G pass W D new gidmap, map new group new U I D map and pass W D and then there's a bunch of documentation yeah so there's a couple of commands uh, here obviously that that are kind of important so if we do a man login it it begins a session on the on the system. So the login program is used to establish a new session with the system. It is normally invoked automatically by, res- by, by responding to the login prompt on the user's terminal. Login may be special to the shell and may not be invoked as a sub-process. Okay, so that's kind of talking about about how it kind of makes sure that, that you know, you don't double up on your login uh, instance and, and things like that. And that's fine. Okay, so login is an application. That, that literally, it is the thing that gets used when you log into your system. I mean, it's it's as simple as that. That's what login does. The login program is not responsible for removing users from the UTMP file. It is the responsibility of Getty, G-E-T-T-Y, and init to clean up apparent ownership of a terminal session. If you use login from the shell prompt without exec, the user you use will continue to appear to be logged in even after you log out, of the subsession. Yeah, so this, this is kind of interesting, because there is this kind of, um, obviously, really important job of managing who's actually actively logged into a system, who, and, and and whether, you know, temporary files that, that needs to sort of be available to them are still available, or whether they're cleaned out. So that's um, a, a big job, a big, a big and important job. Uh, also installed, as I said, was the su command, which, of course, probably most people know. Maybe not. Um, I mean, sudo is kind of the or the sudo or whatever is is kind of the the new su. So maybe you don't know that much about su. But su it, it switches user or it becomes super user. I'm not really sure what on earth it it it's actually standing for. I always assumed. Well, I w- I think I was originally told that it was super user. But I knew very early on that that was not the only purpose of SU, so I I don't believe I ever sort of thought of it as super user. So I think I always thought it just meant switch user, but I don't actually see that anywhere in the man page. It's just something that maybe I assumed and kind of backronymed because I needed it to mean something other than super user. So it's su switches users, so if you are logged in as um, 2, then you can do su space dash, and the dash means inherit my home environment, and then the name of some user, so let's uh, do foo. And then you hit return, and then you type in the password for foo, or, or whatever user, and, and you become that user. Now. Similarly, you can do SU space dash with nothing, and nothing defaults to root, which... Y- the, the more I think about it, the less that makes sense. I mean, that just seems like such a... Like really? just Nothing just defaults to the most significant user on the system? Is that really what we want to do? But yeah, okay, I guess it is, and it's, it's been that way forever, so that, there you go. Now you can do just SU, no dash, and then you're, 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 you, you become root, as long as you've got the password, but um, you, you're not inheriting the roots environment, which generally doesn't mean anything to you, except sometimes it does, and I find that out the hard way every time I forget uh, to do the su-return, dash return, uh, which happens whenever I'm uh, compiling FFmpeg on Slackware, because FFmpeg on Slackware very specifically requires something like text... TechC HTML or, or some, some kind of documentation processor that, for whatever reason, isn't in the path of a standard user but is in the path of the root user. So if you do su-dash, then you can, or su-space-dash, then you can compile ffmpeg successfully. And if you fail to do that, then whenever it comes time to compiling the documentation, uh, it fails and and gets on your nerves because you've just wasted a bunch of your time. Okay, so then there's uh, C-H-A-G-E, which is Change User Password Expiry Information. Well, I don't set expiries on my passwords for uh, my home system, so that doesn't really mean anything to me, but, but there you go. I know that that is a thing that you can do when you're adding users, you can set an expiry, but that's just not something that I have to do. So uh, chfn, change real username and information. So if if you use um, the user add command or the add user script or whatever, um, then you'll know that as you create a user sometimes, uh, depending on the system and how it's all set up, it, it lets you put in like a real name and a room number and a telephone number and so on for users. And so chfn changes that. and. A lot of that information is used by the finger command, which um, I've worked on systems that actively use the finger command for really useful things, like if you need to find out someone's extension, you could finger, you know, that username, and it would tell you what room they were in and what their phone number was, and all kinds of useful information. It was really great. It's fantastic working on a Unix system that is properly utilized. It's really, really nice. Uh, okay, and then there's uh, the expiry command, or the, yeah, expiry, well, yeah, it's a command. Uh, that checks and enforces password expiry policies. There is gpasswd, which is uh, your ability to administer slash Etsy group and slash Etsy g shadow, which is, of course, different than slash Etsy slash shadow, which has all the password information for users, or not all the password information. Uh, We've just read how Shadow specifically does not contain all that information. Um, There's, let's see, slash uh, bins, or user bin password, or p-a-s-s-w-d, which is your ability to change a user password. Uh, I typically use, I I used to use that a a lot more when I was actually administering, administering a, a system with with active users on it, but I think the the bigger the system gets, the less you tend to use direct commands like this, and you're you're very frequently using some kind of front end, you know, groupware type thing that has its own built-in sort of scheme that you can go in and modify in a sort of a web UI and that sort of that sort of setup. Um, I would love to manage just a, a system in pure Unix. I I think that would be a lot of fun, but um, it's just not, I I don't think, I'm not going to say it doesn't scale well, because I I believe it does scale quite well. It's just uh, people, the users in in the modern world, just don't typically, this is not, you know, the terminal interface for them is not enough. And so then you, you know, you end up installing groupware software that, is a little bit more graphical and accessible through their web browser. And at that point it's it's just kind of silly to use the system level tools because now you've got all these other, the you know, you've got software that is running with a different set of users and different set of information. And so it just, it becomes a moot point to manage them on the Unix level. So that's it's not something that you really get to do in real life all that often anymore. But it is something that you can do, and it is a lot of fun to do, if that's what you're into. Okay, and now the, the final one, and this is the exciting one really, this is uh, the one that I was waiting to get to. It's called Char, and you may or may not have heard of this one. I, I had not heard of it before. It's really, really nifty. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about its like history or, or what it was used for or whatever, but but it's really kind of cool. I don't know how far you can take it either, but anyway, so it's called shar, and and the package that gets installed is called sharutils, s h a r u t i l s, and it 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 makes what's called a shell archive out of many files, intended apparently for emailable entities. Um, I guess technically there's some verbiage in the man page and and uh, and the the description about how it uses or it can use uu encode for um, for for emailing, but that you shouldn't use uu encode because it's deprecated and you should use mime type or something like that. But if you do use uu encode, then you should use base sixty four. Blah blah blah. So I don't know why it's saying that. Like I, I'm assuming that it's come, you know, that it's. It's commenting on a uh, common practice that used to be done and has, has since changed. I don't know anything about it. I don't care. The the Here's what I do have, though. So I'm gonna go into a git repository that I happen to have lying around. It's not big. It's just a test one. So I'm gonna do char, and then um, here let's call the git repository foo. And I'm gonna go into foo, and I'm gonna do a git status, and it says nothing to commit. Okay, I'll do git log dash one line. okay, and I see that there are some file that there are some commits there and there are some some um, hashes and commits. okay, good. So I know that it's sort of an active and and healthy environment that I'm in. So I'm going to CD back out of it. and then I'll do a foo or uh, rather char um, foo. that's the name of the repository and then I'll redirect the output of this command into something called foo char just so I know what it is okay and do that it sends some some text through my screen and it's telling me that it's saving these things to as text to to this file this this dot the foo char file and in fact if I do an lS LH and look I see that the foo char is 171 kilobytes and I wonder if I do like an uh, du uh, dash dash human dash readable on foo 428 kilobytes that's interesting okay so anyway so I've got this this text file now and it's called foo dash char so I'm going to make a directory now and I will call the directory uh, bar and I'll go into bar and I'm going to move da, dot dot foo dot char into my current directory and now I'm going to unshar foo dash shar. So I've, I'm in this empty directory, and I'm un un unsharring my f- shell archive. And it's got uh, x and then dash, and it's it, it's telling me things that it created a directory, it's extracting a file, and so on. So now if I if I do an ls, I have my I have my foo directory in in a formerly empty directory it now has foo. I'm going to remove the foo shar. So I'll go into this foo directory and I do an LS. it looks like the git repository. So if I do git status, nothing to commit. okay, git log, dash dash one line. All the commits are still there. So it it made a complete copy of of the directory that I was had just been in. It, it, it made a, it made it into a, f- a text file, which then I was able to unshar in some other location and i have a i have it all back it's all back i've never seen anything like this before honestly this it was that was pretty cool um i don't know you know exactly what i would use that for in today's day and age i don't know why i would use char instead of um, you know tar or or zip i guess but but it was that it's pretty nifty. If you've never tried it, you should you should try it. It's just kind of a cool and sort of quirky way to to send information. I mean, in plain text, it, it's 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 really weird. I mean, I guess you could probably char something and then like GPG it or something, and then send it to someone, and they could unshar it, and it would do things to their system. It's it's really quite interesting. Um, I have no idea about its history or its reason of, a reason for being, but it, it is a, a fun little command, so you should try char sometime. Why not? Could teach you something. Okay, that's about it for today. I mean, we didn't get through all the s's, there, there, were, there are more s's after this, but that's where we're gonna quit, because we're out of time. Really, really um, good little collection of, of applications there, though. Stuff that you probably didn't know existed, or if you did, probably haven't really thought about all that much. So, remember, if you have any cool sed commands, send them to me. I will will read them on the show, and we can all learn something maybe cool and exciting. And if you don't, that's fine. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. Of course you can email me at klaatu at member.fsf.org, that's klaatu at member.fsf, as in Foundation.org. And of course you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. They just leave the computer alone.